When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you GNC? All solid with go flight. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. We take up the space flyer during the flight. He's being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, we've returned to the hallowed surroundings of the British Interplanetary Society Library in London for this month's Space Boffins podcast with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with The Naked Scientists. This month, we'll be talking to a genuine rock star whose head is in the stars, Queen guitarist Brian May. Also, the first British astronaut, Helen Sharman, and we'll pay tribute to NASA legend John Young, possibly the greatest ever American astronaut. And thanks to an email from Jeff in Vancouver in Washington State, USA, we'll be discussing space and politics with our guest, former NASA engineer and now editor of Spaceflight magazine and author of dozens of books on space. I gave up counting, David, to be honest. Uh, David uh, Baker. I mean, there are a lot of visions here surrounding us at the, the British Interplanetary Society for how space might be or, or might have been. You've got a folder of space elevators over there, astronautics, various missions to Mars. Oh, Von and Brown's that fantastic vision. Sculpture. Yeah, there's a brilliant uh, sculpture, this uh, model of a, a, a space plane, a British space plane that might have been in the 1960s. Are we on track now, though, for some of this stuff, do you think? I really think we are. The the very motto of the British Interplanetary Society, from imagination to reality, really epitomises the themes that have retained that sense of creative futurism, which was begun by the founding fathers of the BIS in the 1930s, not least of whom was Arthur C. Clarke. But yes, I do think we are on the verge of that. We must just quickly mention that sculpture, this wonderful chrome or silver-looking space plane that remarkably you told me it was from the 1960s and yet it looks um like one that a commercial company could be building today well it it was called mustard and it was certainly one of the most creative projects to come from the british aerospace industry in the first few years of the the dawn of the of the space age and it was very much in the vein that everybody was thinking of reusable launch vehicles. We, we, we think that, that they're quite new. But, but in fact, shortly after the space age began and the launches each year were accelerating in frequency, um, it was very clear that we had to bring back elements of the launch vehicle itself. And so design engineers from the aircraft industry set to work designing reusable shuttlecraft. And it was from that that NASA's concept of the shuttle arose. But Britain, yes, was looking to put mustard, as it was called, on top of a Blue Streak missile. And so that was yet another application of that rocket that uh, was um, 
to have been the first stage of the Europa launch vehicle. I love that it was called Mustard. You couldn't get a more British name, could Colonel you, Mustard? mustard yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, we'll talk more a bit later with uh, David, but we're going to start with the International Science and Musical Festival, Starmus, because it's just announced its fifth outing will be held in Bern in Switzerland, June of next year. Founded by astrophysicist Garrick Israelian, which I think sounds like a Blake Seven name, quite frankly. It's a brilliant name. The lineup for 2019 is the uh, 50th anniversary of the first moon landing, so it will feature five Apollo astronauts, as well as cosmonauts, space shuttle astronauts, and scientists such as Kip Thorne, Jill Tarter, and Alan Stern. There's also a crossover between science and music with the involvement of Brian May, who helps secure musicians for the festival. Now, uh, he left university before completing his PhD in astrophysics at Imperial College London. And that was to concentrate on being the lead guitarist with an up-and-coming band called Queen. Now, that worked out reasonably well for him, but the lure of space and astronomy called him back. So he went to Imperial again, completed his PhD in 2007. Well, I was at the launch of Starmus and I spoke to Brian for the Space Boffins podcast. I'm Dr Brian May. Of course. And you could call me a boffin, but it wouldn't be quite accurate, really. You could call me a nerd, probably. Oh, we can be space geeks here and it's absolutely fine. Yeah, space nerds. What made you get involved in Starmus in the first place? Well, Garrick... And I go back a very long way. And I first knew Garrick when he came to me and asked me to help him on a movie project, which was about the Earth getting ravaged by a solar flare. We never made the movie in the end, but we became very good friends. Actually, somebody else kind of made the movie or something similar, yeah. But we didn't. Yeah, but we discovered we had so much in common because. I guess we made we, we both had to make a choice. We were both passionate about music and astronomy, and we both had to make a choice at some point in our life. Um, and we made opposite choices. You know, I, I discovered that my supervisor didn't like my thesis, and so I threw my hands up and said, I can't do this anymore. And it just so happened that I could go out and make music for the next 30 years. Garrick was a, also a very good musician, but decided that his real talent was being an astronomer, and he pursued that course. So we came together both with a passion for both things, but having sort of made opposite decisions, but also coming back in, you know, the fact that he's making a movie um, and the fact that he's pursuing all his favourite musicians like Rick Wakeman and Tangerine Dream and stuff, you know, it really brought us together. We had so much in common. I wonder if, if, if you had been doing your degree now mm-hmm. whether actually your direction would have been in the other way that maybe you would have become a scientist first with music on the back burner in the I same don't know. way that you did. I don't know I, I, I had a severe attack of I'm not good enough about this and I've since discovered that I wasn't alone in having that feeling it's a very common imposter syndrome is that what it's called yes, yes yeah. that's right yes, but yeah. yeah so I seriously thought I cannot do this I'm not good enough and um so I was very happy to go off into music, but 30 years later, uniquely, I had the opportunity of coming back and finish off the th- finishing off the thesis in the institution where I'd started 30 years before. Michael Rowan Robinson became my supervisor, and I threw everything up for a year and um, rewrote my thesis, basically, in the light of what had happened in the last 30 years. It wasn't easy, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as people didn't want to be seen to be kind to me. <laughs> they probably reacted in the opposite direction. So it was really tough, but I got the doctorate after you know 35 years, basically. And that brought me back into the world of science. 
And the fact that Garrick and I were by that time um, organising Starmus had brought Garrick back into the world of music. So I found myself with like, Giovanni Gisparian um, in the land of the midnight sun. I'm playing guitar, he's playing duduk, and Garrick is conducting and playing bits of keyboard. So it really brought everything together. It's been There's amazing. something about music and science, isn't there? Because, I mean, the obvious one is Einstein with his, his violin. There's yeah. More recently, there's uh, Patrick Moore with his xylophone. Totally. There's Brian Cox with yeah, the piano. Absolutely. There's you, Newton, quite a few Herschel. members of Queen who oh. also were science, had science backgrounds. Yeah, they? that's right, yeah. Yeah, it, it goes back a long way, and that's the way it should be. I've been saying this a lot today, you know, I feel proud of the fact that we're bringing it all back together because it shouldn't be separate it shouldn't be a choice of whether you're an artist or a scientist and that kind of damaged me when I was growing up I didn't think it was right and and I confirm that feeling now the the complete human being has the whole thing going you know he should be inquisitive about the universe around him he should also be instinctive about the things that he creates in in art of various kinds and that's being a human being being a human being is not being fragmented I'm a scientist you're an artist that's all to me that's all counterproductive. Do you want to grab yourself a cup of tea? Is, <laughs> is Starmus a way of you um, combining then your two loves? Absolutely, yeah. So I was the perfect partner for Garrick in this and, and I pushed him and I encouraged him and and, um, and I'm still his, his confessor. <laughs> he still comes to me when he gets upset, which frequently happens because it's a difficult job he does. I mean, it's incredibly difficult, really, the amount of stress he goes through. Have, have a slurp okay. and I'll, I'll mm. ask you the next how would you com- compare your festival with, say, something like Blue Dot, which also combines music and science that takes fa- place yeah. at Jodrell Bank? Yeah, well, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But yes, yes, I think we're in, on similar lines, and it's great. I think that the whole movement is growing. Um, Do you see this as the future, perhaps, then, of communicating astronomy, space is hmm. combining it with the arts. I do, as human beings, yes. Of course we all have to become specialists, but that doesn't mean that we should sort of hide away in a corner. And, you know, in the beginning, I always got a little bit embarrassed about being a musician when I was in the Department of Infrared Astronomy at Imperial College. They were all a bit kind of smirky about it. Oh, he goes off and plays a guitar, you know. And most of the scientists of that particular moment were not at all aware of of sort of uh, of modern popular music but now it's it's completely different you look at Matt Taylor who has oh, more we, we've had Matt Taylor on the podcast a lot yeah yes. well there you go you know he's he's a top um, explorer scientist technician uh, PI fan. he's covered in tattoos <laughs> heavy on, uh, metal fan yeah, he, yeah he's the biggest heavy metal freak I've ever Star met in my Wars life fan. absolutely <laughs> yeah. and he's got a tattoo of Einstein here next to a tattoo of Lemmy over here you know <laughs> so you know I love that. You know, I love the fact that these people are really taking pleasure in in being a complete human being. So, your audience then? Who do? You, who would be your ideal audience? I suppose the audience we've got really. People who you love mean music as Queen? Oh, you mean Stamp the Stamps? Yeah. It's just what it is. Yeah, people a just queen, come. Everybody likes Queen. Well, yeah, everybody. I'm sure there's a few people. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few people taking pot shots at us over the years. Yeah, our audience has just organically grown and it's lovely I, I love the kind of people who come all walks of life they come from 
Some people are scientists and have a natural bent. You know, some people are very much not scientists or musicians, and they come just because they're inspired by the idea. Are you doing anything with your science at the moment? I mean, I'm just wondering, with so many European missions on, that maybe you could get involved with the space with, I, a, with a mission as a scientist. Well, I do. Yeah, I, I, I hang around scientists. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, they've been. A lot of these guys have been very generous to me. I mean, Matt Taylor is one. He sort of involved me in the Rosetta mission. Alan Stern. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. What? And I've been doing stereo pictures of, of the data that comes back. And I was also in the in the um, in the control room when uh, New Horizons got the first information back from that flyby of Pluto. Pluto yeah. And I put the first stereoscopic picture of Pluto together, and went. How about this? And he's been great. So they they kind of call me a collaborator. So I I love it. I just to me that's the one of the greatest privileges I could possibly have. And he's Alan's invited me to go and this is Alan Stern. Alan Stern, yeah, amazing man. He's invited me to go and do the same thing when they rendezvous with their next um, port of call, which is New Year next year. So I'm hoping to be there and we get the first area pictures of this fantastic KBO. So yeah, I love it. I mean, I couldn't be happier. I get to go to to observatories and people don't laugh at me anymore <laughs> I'm not saying they would but you know what I'm saying it was people treat me like I have a, a place there which is yeah. so nice I feel very privileged mm. well there's something about working within space science as well oh, isn't it yeah lovely people it's a great community very open yeah and the people we meet at Starmus are just you know great and they all mingle together have fun I'll never forget having breakfast with Neil Armstrong in the first Starmus up on um, at the observatory in, in La Palma and just very relaxed and looking back I think why didn't I ask him this why didn't I ask him that but it wasn't like that it was just people enjoying a moment and talking about life and and the beauty of our surroundings so I feel I've been so lucky in my life so incredibly lucky what a nice man Dr Brian May what an incredible, thoughtful guy. And he's right about this sense of completeness of a human being. I saw you nodding, David, then when that, that when he mentioned that about feeling yes. he didn't have to apologise yes. for liking yes. music and the arts yes. as well as science, what have you. It's hardly worthy of a comparison, but before I jetted off to the States in the early 1960s, I was down for the Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. Hardly worth mentioning within the exalted presence of Brian May, but I, I completely connect with that. Music has, has been, for most people I know in science and engineering, it's that hidden bit that they should pull the veil away from and just accept that, you know, we we actually are complete human beings if we if we express ourselves in all these different. It's creativity, mediums. isn't it? People it is. often mistakenly think yeah. that anybody within the sciences yeah. is not creative. I know, and that's quite how <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not allowed to no. say. <laughs> can we beep it? Can I bring my clarinet one day? <laughs> Space buffers. Yeah. You, um, you could then, when I swear, you could just go. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, David, the, the mm. reason we've asked you on is. Uh, you are one of the most knowledgeable people I know on the, the politics of space. You've written a lot about the You write in Space Flight a lot about the politics of space. So we've had this email. This is from uh, Jeff Osborne in Vancouver, Washington State in USA. And he says, I've been enjoying your podcast for a year or so, which is very nice of him. I didn't have to read that bit out, but I thought I would. Uh, you're UK based and I'm an American. One of the current problems with our democracy is that the president as chief administrator seems to be able to change long term directions on a much shorter time scale than the work itself. For instance, it seems that each president recently has decided to fiddle with the direction of our 
fast space program. When programs take many years to prepare, having your goals reset every four years leads to wasted effort on an enormous scale. Discuss. Well, it's true, isn't it? It's very true, and it goes right back to the beginning of the space program itself, in fact, because presidents like to surround themselves with successful national achievements and accomplishments that feed into goals that they set for various agencies and various aspirations, whether it's in technology, foreign policy, or social and welfare programs. Um, Probably the first disruptive president on a massive scale was Kennedy, because only three years after NASA was formed, he decided to completely tear up the blueprint that NASA had itself created from consultation with scientists and engineers and some of the best-informed people in the United States, suddenly adopted the space program as a tool by which he could brandish essentially technological superiority over the Cold War adversary, the Soviet Union. And so, as we all know, the moon decision was made at a time when Kennedy was not all that enamoured with space. And in fact, we have from the Oval Office tapes um, verification that that he he was not at all keen to have the moon programme serve as a precedent for continued high expenditure on space. Uh, and so the plan, uh, as I understand it, from NASA was actually a much more gradual plan, and it's kind of gone in the wrong order, really. It was to establish maybe a space station in, in low Earth orbit and then look to go a bit further than that, then maybe land on the moon and then head to Mars, something so we'd be landing on the moon, I don't know, around now or, you know, in the, in the last 10 years. Well, that's certainly the case. And when you look at the diary of events that took place, Sputnik 1 in October 57, a year of deliberation after shock horror about the 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 event that really stunned most of the world um, and the formation of NASA in October 1958, when it formally came into existence, um, it was generally agreed that there will be a progression from the Air Force manned space program that NASA renamed Mercury um, across into a series of evolving capabilities that would sequentially grow on the accomplishments and achievements of each step. And the next step defined toward the end of 1960 calendar year was the Apollo program, which NASA wanted as an Earth-based laboratory, a circumlunar next step and a moon landing third step. Um, and Eisenhower was not at all convinced that, that he should sustain the space program. So NASA put that on the shelf. Kennedy came on board, and immediately after he was elected into office in November 1960, it was very clear that he it, it was a sideline interest with him as, as something to pursue but to just hold on to and not to invest in. And he too turned down further investment in Apollo. And then um, immediately after uh, Yuri Gagarin, um, there is the famous memo to Lyndon Johnson, how can we literally disrupt the avalanche of accomplishments that the Soviet Union is embarked upon. And so the moon landing decision announced at the State of the Union on the 25th of May, 1961. <laughs> it's extraordinary short-term political thinking. It's, it's all about what can we announce, what can we make, which, which happens today in politics. So let's talk about now then. We had the Obama administration, which I mean, had a very ill-defined idea of, of building a Ryan for an asteroid or maybe onto Mars, but not, not fully... Fun- no, you, can, you can correct me in a second, <laughs> because I can see you at your face there. And then we've got the, the administration now talking about going, going to the moon. So is that another example? 
Well, it could be thought to be so, but in fact, immediately preceding the um, inauguration of President Obama, there was, of course, a decision based on the loss of Colombia that NASA had to make a strategic judgment as to whether to allow a lot more money into the shuttle to considerably upgrade with various technical improvements that many of us who were close to the program in the 1980s have been advocating. Much more reliable boosters, filament round boosters, a full-scale crew recovery compartment, various structures such as that. And after the second shuttle was lost, Columbia, the Bush administration decided that rather than continuing to invest in that 1970s technology, which is what it was, that they would return NASA to the role for which it had been inaugurated by Congress, which was to advance the cause of exploration into the solar system. And so the Constellation program was named by Bush, which had had a very large launch vehicle, which the derivative version of which is now the Space Launch System, um, and uh, also an Orion spacecraft that would be the fundamental core for moving between Earth and Moon, and that a moon lander, Altair, as it was called, would be the vehicle to carry people down to the surface. And when Obama came in, that was the programme that was set. So what happens? We, if we did an interview five years ago with anyone at NASA, it was all about Mars. We're going oh, to Mars. Stepping stones to Mars. Yes. Every launch, and the, the first Orion launch that, yes, that, that you I was went at, to, it was all, it was all Mars, stepping Mars, stones Mars, to Mars. Mars, 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 and that you know ludicrous narrative they have to squeeze yeah. in between the the rocket launching and and clearing the tower. It's now like, it's Moon, Moon, it, Moon. It, it's like some sort of 1984 <laughs> where suddenly that no longer you know we never said Mars. It's all about the Moon. Yeah. But that's the problem, isn't it? When it's political, you think maybe NASA yes. should be beyond politics. Yes, but... yes, indeed. And we're and, we're and, con- and everybody. We're continually. Um, blighted by the desire of presidents to embrace accomplishments within either a four- or an eight-year period of when they are inaugurated, because they're maximum period of of eight years. And just reverting back to Kennedy, um, in the car on the way to declare his State of the Union address, he was going over and making noted changes to the speech. And the speech had been um, rather patronisingly put in by... NASA, who wanted to really please the president, that they could achieve a moon landing by 1967 within the eight-year tenure so that he could go out on a great big glory of I-landed men on the moon. And to his credit, he said, I think you're balancing too much on this short term. Let's say the end of the decade. So he liberated himself from the blame that could that history could <laughs> have accrued. But that did not catch with later presidents. When Carter came on board, he almost cancelled shuttle. It came within a whisker of being completely cancelled in the mid-1970s. When Clinton came on board, it came within one vote of Congress to completely cancel the International Space Station. But when the plan for constellation under the Bush administration was examined by President Obama. He was totally and completely averse to any major government investment in space programs. And NASA's deputy administrator, Laurie Garver, became passionately convinced the White House over the head of the NASA administrator, Bolden, to push forward for a complete commercialization of space. So the Obama administration latched on something that was so far out, they knew this, and I, I've had discussions with White House staffers on this. We knew it would throw the ball so far that it would be so far out, nobody could say we'd failed. 
because it couldn't have been accomplished within the term of the president anyway. So what are we going to do for this president? Well, OK, we're going to really push a Bush initiative, which was to have commercial launch vehicles, commercial resupply to the space station, and then let's work out how they can push on and maybe commercialise the race to Mars. And it was the Obama administration that was probably the most disruptive since Kennedy for completely wrenching around the logic of how you progressively move from A to B. So where are we at the moment? Because first, in terms of the politicians... The advice in the second term of the Obama administration from NASA was do not meddle with the original mission structure that NASA came aboard declaring itself able to achieve in the late 1950s, which was to have space station, lunar and then Mars. Don't disrupt that. We've now begun to get back the concept of operating people in low Earth orbit. To take them to Mars, it's an impossible, no-hope chance that's never going to succeed and, and could completely destroy future space planning by the fact that it, it, it actually um, brings in its own catastrophic demise through a total failure, which, which it would invoke. So many people at NASA in the second half of the Obama administration were saying, we've got to start to build at lunar distance, a capability that we now have in low Earth orbit. We need to get people operating around the moon. Now, I did some studies for one of the NASA field centres four years ago, whereby we were looking at how you manoeuvre very large structures around bodies in space which are fundamentally discontinuous in their structural composition. Sorry, how do you mean by that? I don't know what that word means. <laughs> the homogeneity of the moon structure, so that you've got a lot of mass lumps in the moon pulling and tugging at orbits. And one of the things we were shocked by in the Apollo program was we, on more than one occasion, had to wake the crew up to alter the trajectory of the orbit because it was being pulled and tugged and was perilously lowering the orbit of the spacecraft. And this has bugged trajectory specialists ever since Apollo. How are you going to operate stations? The Earth is uniform and much more heterogeneous than the homogeneous moon. So we argued we need to go to the moon to get the working practices first. And what about the these commercial players then? Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, I mean, maybe to a minor extent, uh, Richard Branson and, and, and the like. Uh, could they do all this first? I mean, is there now... Uh, you know, is there, is there now just as likely that it'll be private operators or some sort of combination of government private? And are we on track or is this going to all go up in the air again when the administration changes? Well, while the NASA PR machine has been grinding out Mars first and Mars next and, and Mars now, um, I think many people in the agency have been quietly hiding under their desk waiting for the day of awakening to come. And it did come during, I think, beginning five years ago, everybody said there ain't any way you're going to be able to go from this to Mars and straight away. So everybody began thinking and talk has been going around with the partners for the International Space Station when the previous round of how long are we going to keep the space station going was fixed. It was understood we now need to move space station to around the moon in what is now called the Deep Space Gateway. We need to learn the practices of how to operate people and how to keep them in space outside the Van Allen radiation belts. We need to learn to tackle the scientific and the technical problem. So this is not new. The commercial industries are leveraging up in the knowledge that, and there's been much corridor talk and behind-the-scenes discussion with these guys, they know they're not going to single-handedly take humans to Mars. They know single-handedly they're not going to land people on 
moon settlements. But this is not new. And, and fast-tracking to what's happening now, all the learning practice and rehearsals and technology development for Space Station is going to be transferred to slightly further out to support the infrastructure requirements, logistics and supplies for the Deep Space Gateway. And Moon First has been coming for five years. I compliment this administration. I know people have incredibly divergent views on the Trump administration, but the one thing he has done is not tinker with what was coming anyway and to take it as a sequential logical step we want to keep him out of it and as far as we're concerned he's he's only interested in doing that well jeff i hope that answers your question (laughs) um if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us via email info at boffinmedia.co.uk i think the dot com works as well but you know try it see what happens and uh you can also reach us on facebook twitter and instagram which i don't entirely understand do you understand instagram um it's 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 a photo thing. thing that's about yeah, it. I put up a Death Star mug. That everyone liked that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, still to come, I'll be talking to the first British astronaut, Helen Sharman. Also, what Space University is all about, and celebrating the life of John Young. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and this month we're in the library of the British Interplanetary Society with the editor of Spaceflight magazine, David Baker. You can see pictures of us on Facebook, Twitter and probably Instagram and also pictures of Sue and her new best friend, Brian May. And and Helen, actually. And the reason I was uh, sandwiched in between them both is because Helen Sharman, Britain's first astronaut, is also going to be a speaker at next year's Starmus Festival and she was at the launch too. Now, Helen flew to the space station Mir in 1991. Mir no longer exists and that was succeeded by the International Space Station. But now it looks like funding for that is also going to end within the next few years. So I asked Helen, how did she feel about it? And did she think we were actually going to say goodbye to the future of human space travel? I think what we're doing is saying a a grand welcome to commercialisation of space and actually we're showing how commercialisation is already starting to reap the benefits which mean that the governments and the taxpayers don't have to fund the the ongoing, the the stuff that we we know we can do now. That goes off to commercial companies um, and I'm sure the International Space Station or some something like it will remain because it's produced such a lot of good science and um, and it enables us to progress other things as well but you know we've got um, commercial companies that can um, launch can return they can dock onto the international space station we just need them now to be safe enough to take people there um, and we've got some um, we've got sort of a, a business that can, can be created people are very willing to spend money on going to space themselves so if, say, if that enables governments to focus on other aspects that the companies at the moment are not interested in that is the way to go. One of the themes for the festival is also going to be about the the environmental aspect of of our world. And it's something that astronauts in particular, the view from space often changes their view of the sort of fragility of, of the Earth. Did that happen to you as well? I think a lot of astronauts have come back and, and talked about the environmental concerns and it's partly because it was a very hot topic of conversation and public discourse at the time. It didn't change my mind on, on the fragility of the Earth per se, but it certainly makes you realise uh, how the, the world is, is, is just one of so much going on out in space um, and um, there's nobody else that's going to really be bothered about it. Nobody else is going to pick up the pieces if we do make a mess of it. It is down to us. So I think um, perhaps that's something that, um, that, that we, we, 
becomes a, a bit more poignant, you know, when you when you sort of see how small we are in this vast universe. Now, for me, I learned a lot about human relationships um, and the value of those um, because they're what astronauts miss most in space. Speaking of human relationships, one of the organisers of Starmus is Alexei Leonov, and he was your boss when you were in um, Star City. How is your relationship with Alexei? Oh, Alexei, I love him to bits. So, yes, I remember him very fondly as, um, as, my, as my boss and organiser of, of basically my schedule. And he, but he was also very caring, um, and he became a bit like um, a sort of a substitute father to me out in Star City, um, always wanted to look out for, for me. And actually, subsequently, he and I have crossed paths, bumped into each other, but also been, um, been, been rather supportive. So he's, I know, come over to, to London at um, Science Museum events, for instance. He's, he's always, I think, perhaps he and I do believe in some of the same things, which is about the communication. Um, it's about making sure that people have got access to information and in a free, in a free way, and that we open up all of this. And it's fun. And so I think he's the lovely man. He's, he's, he's so so friendly and so much so, so much full of um, of vigor and and he's a legend, energy. Of course. of course. I mean, you know, this, this first spacewalker and to to be, be so human as well. Uh, Alexei was a perfect person to choose for the Apollo Soyuz link up, um, and and that that's really also I think part of why he's continued to to want to communicate and to reach out across countries and because he saw saw the benefits and sees how the world can operate if we do it together in a mutually beneficial way. Helen Sharman, who will be one of many astronauts speaking at the Starmus Festival in Bern in 2019. Now, tickets for the festival will go on sale towards the end of this year, so we'll keep you updated in case, like us, you fancy going along. Now, if you drive a couple of hours from Bern, you'll reach the International Space University in the city of Strasbourg in the Alsace region of northern France. It offers a number of space-related courses ranging from several weeks in duration to, in the case of their master's programme, one or two years. Now, I was there quite recently to give a lecture and took the opportunity to chat to Professor Chris Welsh, who runs the Master of Space Studies course. Before long, we diverted into space memorabilia, but I did begin by asking him a serious question about where the university's alumni tended to end up. Well, it's very broad. Some of them do go on and work uh, in space agencies. Some of them go on and work in universities, and some of them go on and work in space companies. Others set up their own space companies. The head of the uh, South African Space Agency, SANSA, Valentin Munsami, is an ISU uh, SSP uh, alumni. Uh, SSP? Uh, the Space Studies Programme. In terms of people working for space companies, uh, you will find people in SpaceX, in Airbus, in Boeing, uh, all the big space companies. You'll find ISU alumni there. And then in the new space sector uh, as well, companies like Planet, one of the three founders of Planet, is a, an ISU master's alumni. And um, in a UK context in particular, uh, the company Spire Global, uh, was set up by, by four master's students five years ago while they were on their internship. They uh, raised $150,000 on Kickstarter to uh, launch their first CubeSat. And now, five years later on, the company is worth, I think, about $250 million, and they employ 200 people worldwide. You get a share. 
Unfortunately not. <laughs> I, I, I wish I wish I wish I had thought to sort of request equity, uh, but uh, no, I didn't didn't think of that. And so uh, for the, for the masters course in particular, then they can choose, can they, in terms of which specific area of of the space industry that they want to uh, concentrate their studies. Well, we have a very broad curriculum here. We're not just a, a science school, an engineering school. When we say interdisciplinary, we have what we consider to be the ISU disciplines. You have to split them up somehow. So we have space engineering, we have space science, uh, physical sciences, we have space applications, which includes remote sensing, telecommunications, and so on, space management and business, policy, economics, and law, human performance in space, which is all to do with the physiology and psychology of spaceflight, uh, and lastly, the humanities. So also lectures on uh, you know, cultural studies, on art, uh, on communication, uh, and so on. I uh, met the NASA astronaut class of 2013, Jessica Meyer. She's got a master's from here, hasn't she? Indeed, yes. She, she is our, our first ISU master's astronaut. We hope to have more in due course. And uh, there are many uh, what we call global faculty members, members of the ISU family who are also involved with uh, with ISU. We've sometimes had uh, ISU uh, resident faculty who are former astronauts uh, uh, here actually sort of teaching the students. It's like an ideal uh, job really, isn't it, for somebody who's a space nut because I, I have to describe the room that we're doing this interview in because I thought the Space Boffin's office was... Uh, filled with, uh, I hate to use the word tat, space tat, but but looking around, you've got miniature rockets, space books, pictures, pennants, models of spacecraft. That's a, a lunar lander over there. What looks like some sort of Russian flight suit hanging up on the coat peg. What What is that? That's very well spotted. That's, that's a MiG uh, pilot's uh, uh, G-suit. Uh, and on the uh, bookshelf over there you can see the helmet uh, I, I bought that in the 1990s in Moscow because I could <laughs> $100 on Arbatskaya and uh, that's um, quite unusual because you've got a, a, a poster up on the wall of the uh, first Anglo-Soviet space mission Juno which was Helen Sharman Britain's first astronaut that's right well I, I was involved in that I was candidate number 23 before getting uh, you know ejected for having a, a left nostril of insufficient quality <laughs> uh, you're not bitter uh, no, no. <laughs> Well, it's better than being thrown out on psychological grounds, I always feel. <laughs> and, and that actually came from a, from a display they had on the final night of the selection at the Science Museum when they had a, had a rather strange television programme. It's a bit like a you know, reality TV programme would be nowadays where they, where they showed off the four finalists and announced the final two. Uh, at the end of the evening, uh, I came away with that. And I, That's I've, wonderful. I've, I've had that. it ever since. So which is your most treasured possession? Probably right now, something I, ha- I have received only just today. It's a little piece of netting or mesh. Probably only about three or three centimetres, three or four centimetres across. Three or four centimetres across. But this is part of the cargo net that was in the Grumman Apollo 13 lunar module Aquarius. So this this small piece of of, of netting has been around the moon and, and, and back. So... Uh, apart from some of my collections of you know meteorites and rocks that have been in space, this is this is I think my most travelled possession, and I'm still sort of you know looking at it. I'm not quite stroking it, saying my precious, my precious, but, <laughs> but almost. <laughs> but, yes. I, but I'm certainly looking at it and feeling very happy. I and can content. tell. I can absolutely tell. And also, I know that um, you get <laughs> some quite incredible high status speakers here. Oh, plus me. Do you use this as an excuse to get 
astronauts that you've always wanted to meet to come and speak? Well, we, cer- we certainly try. In fact, we've got an astronaut panel here for the students uh, in a few weeks. So, so yes, ISU is very well you know, connected you know, internationally. Our board of trustees you know, has representations from all the space agencies, big space companies, uh, and so on. And so it, it is easier for us to, to, to attract these high-profile speakers. Chris Welsh from the International Space University in Strasbourg. Now, you said he was a master of space studies. Is that like a Jedi master? <laughs> he runs the master of space okay. studies. He could really well cool. be, yeah. I'd like to be a master of space Who studies. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And that next, um, their next space studies programme, this is a shorter one, is in the Netherlands, and it uh, runs from June to August, so just check their... Uh, website to uh, if you're interested in, in going along and I'll put a few photographs of some of that memorabilia on the uh, Twitter Facebook and Instagram probably, feed, uh, probably uh, because that's they are they really are brilliant the, the stuff he's got now there is only one astronaut in the entire history of space flights so far who has flown three completely different spacecraft Gemini twice Apollo twice and the space shuttle also twice. Not only that, John Young flew the first Gemini mission, the first space shuttle mission, and walked on the moon as commander of Apollo 16. Well, I only met him once back in 1999 when he was still working at NASA and he was the most unassuming of all the Apollo era astronauts. John Young died in January, aged 87. Here in three minutes are all his space missions, from Gemini 3 in 1965 to Space Shuttle Columbia in 1983, the first international mission of the shuttle. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. And we have a liftoff. We have a liftoff at 24 minutes after the hour. The callers report here that all systems looking fine. IU GNC. All solid with go flight. With Gemini 10 in orbit, and less than seven hours after the start of this three-day mission, the two craft lock noses safely and without difficulty as they soar over the Pacific Ocean about 185 miles out in space. Later, the combined vehicles are thrust to record heights, as high as 476 miles. Hello, Apollo 10, Houston, over. Uh, Roger, Houston, Apollo 10, you can tell the world that we have arrived. Roger, 10, it's good to hear from you. I would believe this thing. Was John Young. The guidance was absolutely fantastic, and we'll give you the, the burns right now. This engine is just beautiful. Ain't it straight flat, John? Wow, there's that ridge to the north. Yep, sure oh, is. All we got to do is jump out the hatch and we got plenty of rocks. Houston, uh, boy, it sure looks like you can make, uh, I see, uh, ground crater from here. I can see, uh, ray crater from here. Not a boy. Almost that apoplexy, that program alarm, and that's your radar breaker. Charlie's, Charlie's about, <laughs> Charlie's got nothing but a ridge to look at. That sounds beautiful, John. Wish I were there. Smooth sailing, baby, to astronauts John Young and Bob Crippen.
morning, boy. Oh, John. Creepy. <laughs> to wake up. Time to get up for the big splashdown today. <laughs> and both of you could use a shower. Smells <laughs> <laughs> like Young's been into the instant breakfast drink again. <laughs> Come on. and manual flight control mode. Commander John Young uh, controlling the vehicle. Now here you see uh, six men getting off a spaceship after uh, ten days in space. They haven't had a bath. You might say this is six dirty old men, but... <laughs> it, and they probably really are. Looking forward to a shower. And I think they're pretty darn steady considering how long they've been up there. That was great. I really enjoyed yeah, that. John Young. So uh, we had there Gemini 3, Gemini 10, Apollo 10, Apollo 16, first space shuttle STS-1, and we had STS-9 at the end. And uh, the sort of jingle in the middle with the wake-up call for uh, With the creepy STS-1. wake-up, John. Yeah, there's, it, I can't remember the names. They were famous Houston DJs um, that had this this show. Do I don't know with David. No, I, we'll, I, I will look it up. We've had mentioned them before on Space Boffins. I, I, will, I will look it up and I'll, I'll, I'll find out you mentioned david when we we're listening to that i said six missions and you said seven launches so explain well of course while most launches occur on the surface of the earth where the future of the mission is at stake with regard to the flight and every astronaut feels that a launch that goes awry does not result in his death um the seventh launch for john young was of course off the surface of the moon where indeed on that occasion his life very much did depend. And while there had been uh, five flights before off the surface of the moon, um, nevertheless, you know, that's one serious hefty wake-up call when you know that your very life depends on getting off the surface. So, yes, actually, six missions, seven launches. And what a remarkable man! I, I met him. I met him once, and it was extraordinary. I was sort of he was sort of thrust upon me. It was at NASA in 1999, and they said, "Oh, you might want to interview this guy. He was one of the Apollo astronauts." And I, what you know, I wanted. I was fairly young at that point, and I wanted to basically ask them with the anniversary coming up. I wanted to ask them what was it like to walk on the moon. He didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to talk about computers, <laughs> and it was the dullest interview. But he was so unassuming yeah. and just wanted to share the credit mm. with everyone, mm. which was rubbish for me as a, as a radio mm. reporter. Mm. But, I mean, enormous respect for the man. You heard it there at the end as well. Mm. Yeah, he, he was really a terrific team player. And uh, I, can, I, I can remember um, being in Houston when a BBC crew came in during 1966 to make a film about the astronauts preparing for the upcoming Apollo missions. And this was a few months before the fire, the Apollo fire. And I remember, John, when I said, we've got some Brits over here from the BBC, and his eyes lit up, and and you just couldn't stop him talking in that drawl of his in that wonderful way. But on the serious side, I think we all felt that John epitomised the legacy of the Mercury 7. Pretty tough going, straight-talking, plain-talking individuals um, who said things as they were and who punched for their own side and not for their own egos. And yet it came across with many people that those Mercury astronauts had big egos. But what they had 
a big sense of was responsibility to the job they were doing. And John's commitment to safety and the way he pushed and pushed and pushed and survived the um, the uh, reversals from management that, that wanted to, to actually sideline him because he was becoming too troublesome on pushing for safety. He held the line, and I think while many around him were playing politics in the astronaut corps, he simply kept the solid truth, we are here to fly, we're here to do it safely, all of us together. Oh, thank you, David. For, uh, it's been great having you on the podcast, actually. It's been full of insights into... Uh, Space history, effectively. Yeah, very good. So (laughs) our guest there, David Baker, and we're at the British Interplanetary Society. And thanks also to the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium who support our podcast. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do look us up on social media. Try Instagram, see what happens. (laughs) Uh, Feel free to send us any more questions like Jeff did. And thanks for listening. Selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.